0: Good morning, everybody. Well, it's good to be back and back. Now, God willing, I'm here for at least until September when I'm out again on a trip to Greece and then an October trip to Israel. But between now and then, we'll be able to cover some ground in the, uh, in the, the Word of God, and what a privilege it is to do that. This past week, my family and I went to Florida And Dan's got a picture for us up here somewhere. Ah. What about this half of the class? So anyway, look over here if you can see. These are red snapper. I'm talking about the fish, not the people. (laughs) But we, uh, this is uh, my future son-in-law there on the left, the young, handsome one. I'm the guy in the back holding that fish up, the old, handsome one. Kathy is seated, and then our two daughters there. Uh, we had a great time. We were going to go earlier, but that hurricane thing got in the way, so we uh, we we took a little took a little break. But anyway, we're there for the weekend, and really, really had a good time. Uh, it's nothing like a, a beach to help, uh, you know, without a hurricane to uh, to help you relax. And so it was really a blessing. So, but it's great to be back. Oh, now we got more fish. <laughs> Yeah, we, we actually, these, these are just the photograph fish. We also caught some other, one was a tuna, and uh, those things are fighters. Have you ever tried to land a tuna? They are pretty committed to staying in the water. <laughs> and I also caught a shark, which was really exciting. You know, I kind of always thought sharks were cool, ever since I was afraid to get in the bathtub after 1976's <laughs> blockbuster movie. But I caught a shark. It was—it's uh, just a nurse shark, so it's like it'll gum you to death. But it's—but uh, you know, still a shark. It was about seven, eight feet long, so it was pretty exciting, and it hurt. I'm still bruised from trying to reel that thing in. So anyway, back to back to the Bible. <laughs> what a blessing it was to hear David Gashin sing this morning. I always love to hear him sing, but my favorite. Song that he does in his repertory of all sorts of things is that a song from the musical Les Miserables where he sings Bring Him Home. Isn't that great? Have you ever heard him sing that? Um, I've got a David Gashin impression that I'd like to do for you of, of Bring Him Home. <laughs> God on high. How's that? Pretty good? Actually, that's more of a baritone. Da-da-ha. Yeah, that's closer. And it just goes up from there. <laughs> well, encore. Yes. Well, actually, the, the musical itself, that's like the best part of the whole thing. If you've ever seen the musical, it's pretty raunchy. I would not advise you go see that, at least with grandkids or stuff. But the, uh, there's been quite a few adaptations done of Victor Hugo's novel. And my favorite is the uh, the movie that starred Liam Neeson. That was back in the '90s, I think. But boy, that was so well done. And one of the scenes in that, the most pivotal scene of Jean Valjean's life, was right there at toward the beginning, where you know the story is that uh, Liam Neeson is this character Jean Valjean who is a criminal who stole bread because his family was starving when he was a boy. He stole bread and, as a result, spent way too long in prison and and got very bittered, not just at the system but at God because God allowed this to happen to him. Well, finally he's released and he's got this, um, you know, he, he's a convict now for the rest of his life, and no one will take him in. No one will hire him, and he's just sort of stuck. And this kindly old bishop takes him in, feeds him, lets him sleep uh the night and then Jean Valjean sneaks in the nighttime and steals the silver from this pre uh, this bishop's house. The bishop catches him in the act. Valjean smacks the bishop, knocks him down, and escapes. Well the uh the police capture him and bring him back and you know the bishop is right there and all everything said that justice is that Valjean should go back to prison for life. If he broke his parole, back to prison for life. And instead, the bishop, though he had the right to have Valjean imprisoned, said, "Go get the silver candlesticks and give them to him." And said, "You know, did you forget the candlesticks?" And so he gives the bishop gives Valjean the candlesticks and sends the police away. And the bishop has this private moment with Jean Valjean. And he tells him, he says, with this silver, I've bought your soul. He says, uh, he says, do not forget, don't ever forget, that you've promised to use the money to make yourself a better man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. And now I give you back to God. I mean, the scene itself, you just want to stand up and just start weeping. It is so moving to see the expression on Valjean's face where grace, grace given to a life that hadn't even repented, just grace showered on him, changes his life. And from that moment on, he becomes this ambassador for God to dispense grace in the lives of other people. In fact, he kept the candlesticks as a token and as a reminder of the grace of God in his life. Now, that's Victor Hugo's fiction, but that is the reality of our everyday lives. Everyday lives. As Christians, we are very familiar with the grace of God as well, aren't we? His amazing grace is our favorite hymn. We could all stand and sing all ten verses of it, and, and by memory, grace brings us salvation for eternity. We've got that part down. Our challenge is grace for Tuesday. How do we live, how do we apply God's grace? What does God's grace have to do for us every day, not just in eternity? How can God's grace help us today, not just in eternity? Well, thankfully, God's grace is helpful not just for you know, the hereafter, but also for the afternoon. Turn with me to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. Titus is a book, if you want a book on the grace of God and answering the question, so what, to the grace of God, the book of Titus is your book. We are uh, continuing our series here where we take a single message from each book of the Bible and just selecting a a little piece from, from every book and what we've selected here from Titus focuses on God's grace in our daily lives. As we've said before, the Apostle Paul wrote so many New Testament books that it's tough to kind of keep them straight, but you can remember, sort of remember and organize them in your mind in this way. On the first missionary journey, he wrote one book. Remember what it was? Galatians. Second missionary journey, he wrote two books, First and Second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, he wrote three books, one, two, three, Uh, Those three books were 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. And then on his journey to Rome, or might be better just to say his first Roman imprisonment, he wrote four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Then he was released for a short time and he wrote the pastoral epistles, or at least a couple of them, one of which was Titus. So Titus, Titus traveled, who was Titus? We don't get a lot about Titus. In the book of Acts or the rest of the epistles, but Titus traveled with Paul from the early days. He's actually mentioned in Paul's very first book, the book of Galatians. So we know that Titus was around from pretty much day one, and he was a, a very valuable uh, asset to Paul's ministry. Paul traveled to Crete and left Titus there. One of the places I had the privilege of going like two, three week, four weeks ago, was Crete, and actually did research to figure out where Titus ministered, and actually where he was buried. It was pretty neat to be able to go and see. They, of course, they build a basilica over everything Christian and places where they can, and so there's a basilica over the the grave of Titus, which is which was pretty much an honor to see. Titus was left on Crete. If you'll look at Titus chapter one, look at verse five. Paul writes the reason that, that he left him there. He says, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Every city. Now, we look, at the, we look at Crete on a map, and you think, okay, well, it's an island, you know. so he's got to go around to every city. That's a big island. I mean, it took hours to drive from one end to the other. So this is a lifetime project that Paul is giving to Titus on Crete to appoint elders in every city." That is a lot of work. And then he goes on, of course, in the rest of chapter 1 to outline the qualifications for those elders. And if we were to look at chapter 1 and the, the, the very beginning here of chapter 2, we would see that the, the purpose for the book of Titus begins, at least, with good deeds in the lives of Christians the good deeds of elders, or at least what their life ought to look like, the good deeds that fill their lives. Then in chapter 2, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then even slaves, which from our principle we could talk about the the employer-employee relationship. So good deeds are to be a part of our life, but then Paul explains why we do good deeds. We've said it before, but boy, it's helpful to say it again and again, and that is, you could summarize most sermons that we hear across our lives with two words, be good. Pretty much that's what we're told. We open the Bible, the application is, be good. Great, let's go to Denny's. We're all done. Be good. But why? And more so, how? How? Why are we supposed to be good? How are we supposed to be good? God's grace answers that for us. So Titus 2, look down at verse 11, and now we're going to begin finishing this chapter and then working a few verses into chapter 3, talking about what God's grace can do for you every day. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all Men. Or you could translate to all people. It's not just males, but people, humanity. Notice the first word there, for. At least in the New American Standard, it's there. If it's not there in yours, take an ink ballpoint pen and write it in, for. Or you could also write in the word because. It's the idea. Here's the reason that you are to live a good life. Because, or for, the grace of God has appeared Bringing salvation to all people, to all men. I looked up the word grace in Webster's, and he defines it several ways. I'll just give you a few. It's a beauty or charm, of form, like, a, like it's graceful, an attractive quality, a temporary exemption of payment, like a grace period, a prayer before meal, say grace, a title of respect, your grace. The, and the 11th and the final definition, the 11th definition in Webster is this, quote, In theology, the unmerited love and favor of God toward man, divine influence acting on man to make him pure and morally strong, and the condition of a person thus influenced. I hope that definition stays in there. I wish it would move up to number one, but uh, at least it's in there as last in number 11. The grace of God has appeared. Literally, that word, appeared, means to illuminate. It's like, just picture the sun. You know, when the sun starts to rise, and then that first moment that it peaks over the horizon, it just bathes the earth with its light. That's like the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, illuminating or shining upon all of humanity bringing salvation to all people you could translate it the saving grace of god has appeared to all people um, this dates us a little bit but i'm sure it's a, something that uh, most of us remember remember back in the uh, 90s early 90s when o.j simpson was having his uh, media frenzy in his white bronco and all that well back when he uh, It was trying to earn the money or find the money to help pay for the judgment that was ultimately levied against him from his wrongful death suit. I remember reading that he sold his Heisman Trophy. His Heisman Trophy was auctioned off for $230,000. That is a nice price for a trophy. Other items were sold in the auction included a life-size metal statue of O.J., a weighted glass University of Southern California Hall of Fame trophy, a trophy given by the ABC Wild World, World of Sports in 1973. Altogether, the auction earned him $382,000 and change. $382,000. It's a lot of money. But what he owed was $33.5 million. $33.5 million, 382000 you know, 382000 is a lot of money, but compared to what he owed, it didn't come close. After I read that, I thought, you know what? If we can auction off our lives, we'd, we'd have a pretty sizable stack of good deeds, wouldn't we? I mean, we would be pretty impressive. Until you compared the debt that we owe to God, all of a sudden... <laughs> The the great stack of good stuff in our life doesn't compare at all with what we owe God for even one sin that we commit. I read about a a close friend of W.C. Fields found him in his dressing room reading, of all things, the Bible. You imagine W.C. Fields reading the Bible? Well, he was doing it in his dressing room to kind of hide it, and his friend walks in and, and sees him reading it, And W.C. slams the Bible shut real quick, and he said, I'm just looking for (laughs) loopholes. The grace of God has appeared to all people. Why? Why all people? Because all people need it. There's no loopholes. There's no way around the need for the grace of God. There's no good deeds that we could do all throughout our life that would pay the penalty of even one sin that we've done. So the text gives us a principle here, several, actually, that we'll highlight. And the first one is simply this. God's saving grace is freely available to all. Yes, even to you. God's saving grace is freely available to all. Yes, even to you. And I say yes, even to you, because sometimes... You know your life better than anybody except the Lord. And, and of course, if you're married, your spouse. Your spouse knows you better than you do. But you know the depth of your depravity, don't you? The thing is, we only know about a mile deep of the tar pit of our hearts. God sees about ten miles deeper. He sees stuff we don't even know to look for. And yet, we're told that God's grace is freely available to all. We see... The sin in our lives, and we think, God, I am an exception to your grace. There is no way you could forgive me for what I've done. And what we're really saying is, God, I am so proud that I am not going to let your grace cover my sin. God's grace is available to all, even to you. God had no obligation to forgive our sin. Let that land on you for just a second. He had no obligation to forgive our sin. His only obligation was to judge it. But in His grace, He chose to send His Son to die to pay for all of our sin. And all we have to do is believe and receive that. Grace is a gift that we receive. And thankfully, it's a gift that once we receive, it can never be lost. Grace is not God providing you an opportunity to be saved by works. Grace is that you may be saved apart from your works, based wholly on the work of Christ. I read about a story of a Spanish father who had a, a falling out with his son, Paco. Finally, the father decided, you know what, this is ridiculous. We need to, I need to reconcile. I had no idea how to get a hold of his son. So of all things, the, the father put an ad in the paper and he put an ad in the paper and he said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. When he showed up, there were 800 young men named Paco. <laughs> <laughs> longing for their fathers. The need we have for forgiveness is universal. Lewis Smedes wrote a book called Shame and Guilt, and in it he said this, boy, this is profound. He said, quote, guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I felt most was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sin I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let go of me, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. You see, we all have the need that Paco had to have reconciliation. We all have the need that Smedes had to be accepted. Again, God's saving grace is available freely to all, yes, even to you. All people, all people need it. And you know what? If you look at the life of Christ, this was exactly the kind of unconditional saving grace that he demonstrated. Even in his stories, his parables, we see this over and over You see stories of debtors being forgiven a debt they could never pay otherwise, of a prodigal who is freely forgiven by his father, of a good Samaritan who freely helps an enemy. You see a shepherd leaving 99 sheep for the one that's lost. And one of the best is this parable where these guys, day laborers who hired at the end of the day, get paid as much as the ones who have worked all day long. And Jesus' parables make sense only when you realize that we are the prodigal. We're not looking at the story of the prodigal. We are the prodigal. We are the one sheep that has wandered and that Christ has left the 99 to come find. We are the ones hired at the end of the day that didn't earn the wage we got. It was basically given to us as a gift. God's grace is is what Jesus is teaching throughout all these parables. We're saved by grace, we get it no other way. Grace gives us salvation for eternity. Great, amen, Paul. But what about Tuesday? What about our daily lives? Well, look at verse 12. 2.12. Instructing us, well, let's back up because beginning with that sounds funny. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. <coughs> notice, if you're into grammar, notice the verbs and the participles. The verb, the main verb here is has appeared. That is the, the power of that verse. The grace of God has appeared. And its appearing caused two things to happen. First, bringing, there's the participle number one, bringing salvation. And second, instructing us to deny ungodliness. Bringing salvation, instructing, bringing and instructing. God's grace has shown up, has shined across like the sun, shining across humanity, bringing salvation, instructing us to live godly lives. So bringing salvation is the eternal perspective, And then verse 12 instructing us to deny godliness etc the uh, the word that paul uses here for instruct is actually where we get the word for pediatrics pedagogy it has to do with children but particularly here it has to do with instructing children pedagogy is a great word there for that it specifically has to do with continually providing instruction that that forms proper habits of behavior. Continually providing instruction that forms proper habits of behavior. God's grace does that to us. God's grace provides us the context where we can learn to obey. Here's the second principle. God's saving grace is our motivation for godly living. God's Saving grace is our motivation for godly living. And these principles come straight out of the text. The participles, as I mentioned, they sort of give it to us. The first one, God's saving grace is freely available to all, bringing salvation. The second, God's saving grace is our motivation for godly living, instructing us to live a certain way. How does it do that? I remember reading back in, uh, well, I wasn't alive in 1937, but back in 1937, a reading of when the Golden Gate Bridge was being built, Uh, 23 men, when they started this project, 23 men fell to their death uh, because, you know, it's pretty high above the San Francisco Bay there. And men were afraid to work. I mean, after 23 people plummeted to their death, would you go to work the next day? That'd be pretty tough, so you know they're clinging to this bridge while at the same time they're trying to build it. Well, finally, somebody had the bright idea. Why don't we build a net underneath it and catch them? So they built this huge net. In fact, it was the largest net that had ever been built at the time, it cost 100,000 dollars, and it hung beneath the full length of the bridge where the workers were working. And so they started to work again, and 10 men, again, fell, but were caught. And their lives were saved. And the work went 20% faster than it had before. Because guys were like, you know what? I'm just going to work. If I fall, it'll be fun. (laughs) Because they knew they wouldn't die. There was a safety net. It gave them the freedom to work that even if they fell, even if they slipped, they would be caught. That is the grace of God. That's what the grace of God does. When Paul says that the grace of God instructs us, it's, it's basically saying that grace is the context in which we learn to obey. The safety and security of your relationship with God gives you the safety net to learn to obey, like a child learns. It's the whole pedagogy thing, this continual learning. Because we're going to stumble. We're going to put a foot wrong. We're going to do something wrong. And if it wasn't for the grace of God catching us, we would plummet straight down to our death. But the reality is, we have a net underneath us called grace that catches us when we fall, and instructs us and helps us to move forward and learn obedience. God's grace is the context. Years ago, I took my daughters to the mall, and we sort of had a, 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 a habit of when we went to the mall to go into the candy store. They were like six and seven, and they're like when you tell somebody, when you tell the daughters you're going to the mall. You aren't saying going to the mall. You're saying we're going to the candy store. It's just assumed. And so we got in the car, and I I turned, and I said, now, look, I want you to know this time we're going to the mall, but we're not going to the candy store. We're actually going for a different reason. We're not going to go. I said, okay. So we get there, and we walk by the candy store, and my older daughter, she goes, ah, and she turns her head and covers her eyes. She says, I can't look, or I'll want some. And I thought, from the mouths of babes, isn't that true? With our lives, it's it's the seeing, the yearning, and the wanting. Um, I just can't look. It makes me want to have some. God's verse twelve, and verse twelve, God's saving grace instructs us like children. In two ways, Paul says. First, it's negative, and then it's positive. First, negatively, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, the fact that we're going to have to deny them means we have them. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This is, this is what my daughter did when she closes her eyes. She is denying that natural desire to want to go raid the candy store. And you've got your candy store and I've got mine. And if we don't deny it, we will run to it. This is our natural fallen nature. Paul says, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And, it, and the word there for deny is written in such a way to emphasize that it's something we do continually. It's not a one, one and done deal. This is a daily challenge, a daily challenge. We will have the continual temptation to act on worldly desires secondly, God's saving grace instructs us positively. Look there in verse 12, it says, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So negative, to deny, positively, to live. God's grace instructs us in this way. Why do we do good deeds? In one word, gratitude. God's grace gives us that motivation gratitude Not to earn God's favor, but because we already have God's favor. We do good deeds not because we think God will be impressed. We do good deeds as a thank you to Jesus Christ for what he did for us. God's grace instructs us. It motivates us to live for him. To deny ungodliness because he died for me. To live righteously because he died for me. Gratitude. And that we are to do this, Paul says, in the present age, what does that imply? That there's another age. Another age is coming. And it is. Look at verse 13. Here's participle number three. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So God's grace now gives us this hope for the future that we are looking for what Paul calls the blessed hope. That's basically the rapture. We are looking for the rapture, anticipating that that's going to happen anytime. We have that in the forefront of our minds as well as we make the hard decision to deny ungodliness and to live positively, sensibly, righteously, and godly. There was a man named Granville Sharp who discovered a rule of Greek grammar back in 1797 did study of the way different Greek constructions were put together. And he did this in part, he's, I, don't, I don't remember if he did it specifically for this reason or if he stumbled upon it, but he used it in his debate with the Unitarians who denied the deity of Jesus. And there were certain constructions that indicated that the items that were being described were identical. In verse 13, the Granville Sharp rule is one that they taught us in seminary when you have this particular greek construction this is a classic case this verse is teaching and it's translated great at least here in the new american standard i hope yours reflects it as well the kindness of our great i'm sorry our great god and savior christ jesus that the verse is saying that christ jesus is our great god and our savior he's not just you know it's not just great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus, but our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, that Christ Jesus is both God and Savior. The Greek grammar demands this interpretation. In fact, if you were to read throughout the whole book of Titus, you will see that Paul uses the phrase God our Savior and Christ our Savior almost interchangeably. So, not only do we live godly lives out of gratitude for what Christ, our God and Savior, has done, but also out of eagerness for what He will do. He's coming. It's our blessed hope. Any moment, He could appear. Look what our great God and Savior did for us here in verse 14. We're told, "...who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people... For his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So what motivates? Christ gave himself for us. The word here redeem is a is a financial term. It means to buy something, particularly to ransom something. And uh, he did this purifying a special people. The King James Version says a peculiar people. (laughs) I like that. It's kind of peculiar people. But definitely it means a, a special people, a private distinctive possession of somebody. And notice it says that Christ redeemed us from something for something, from every lawless deed for good deeds, to be zealous for good deeds. That's why we were created in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 15 ends this chapter. Paul tells Titus, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. To speak these things, and then it gets even stronger. Exhort these things, and then even stronger, reprove with all authority. Some people you can just talk to, some people you got to get in their face, some people you have to just outright rebuke them. Paul tells Titus, Whatever it takes, don't let anybody disregard you. The word that he uses here for disregard is sort of interesting. It literally means to think around. Think around it. We are masters at that. Have you ever noticed how when you want to do something wrong, you've got really good reasons for it? I mean, you've got verses on it. Paul says, don't let anybody disregard you. Don't let anybody think around. And if this is a, pers- a personal challenge to us as well, because when Paul says, let no one disregard you, You could also understand this or apply this. Let no one disregard what I'm saying. That includes me. That includes you. Don't think around the Word of God. We can do it, but don't do it. Have the courage. Have the moral fortitude to do what is right and not think around it. Well, Paul continues. This flows right into chapter 3. In verse 1, he says, "...remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another." You want a great illustration of this? Watch the news. (laughs) Let me just read these words again with that context. Verse 2, to malign no one, to be peace. And what's the context of this? Government. Verse 3, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. We see even Christians today in the, in the media and on social media maligning aplenty to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all people. Why, Paul? Verse 3. Here's why. Because we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and be hateful, hating one another. In other words, Paul says, remind them. Why do we have to be reminded about this? Because we forget it. And we can forget it in a New York minute when we get stuck in a context where everybody around us is maligning. Uh, Everybody from the president to the cashier at the grocery store gets our opinion. And it's often negative. I got a voicemail years back about a column I wrote in a local paper. I mean, it had definitely had a very Christian theme to it. And this voicemail said this, something like this. He says, uh, uh, Hello, Mr. Stiles, I just want you to know that I, uh, first of all, I'm an atheist. And uh, I saw your column in the paper, and I liked what it said. And I want you to know uh, I appreciate you, and I love you for it. Click. And I thought, how many Christians would call an atheist and say that? And an atheist called me and said that. God used an atheist to convict me. Why should we show every consideration for a world like ours? Because Paul says, we were them. We were them. And notice Paul includes himself. We also. He includes himself in it. We also were once like this. We should always strive to grow beyond our unbelieving past. We've got, we've got past, and some of you have got Lulu's. <laughs> we, we grow beyond our unbelieving past, but we should never forget our unbelieving past because our unbelieving past reminds us of the grace of God. When we forget our unbelieving past and think, begin to shift into the idea that you know, we're really doing God a favor by believing in Jesus... The reality is, no, God's grace reached out to us while we were sinners, while we were helpless, while we were enemies, and saved us. Never forget that the only difference between you, between me and you, and the person going to hell is the grace of God. It's the only difference. Our compassion on a lost world should come from the fact that someone once had compassion on us. And told us about Christ. Dostoevsky wrote, To love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. To love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. You know, we can look at the news, or as I like to call it, the bad news, and remember that the world is not hopeless. We think the world is hopeless. But the world's not hopeless, because God saved us. <laughs> How do I know the world's not hopeless? Just look at you. <laughs> and look at me. God saved us. And he's still in the process of making us holy. Now, our goal is not to make, ooh, this, this is going to step on some toes. And I'm not meaning to step on toes. And I'm not going to malign anyone. But our Christian goal is not to make the United States of America a Christian nation. We are to be involved in the body of Christ and let the body of Christ evangelize. And if God brings that about, praise God. But the goal is church work, ministry work, and let that do its thing that spreads. Uh, We start with, with the church and the grassroots and let the grassroots and the spirit of God do his work in the world. It's not the other way around. So anyway, sorry if that offends you, but that's definitely what I believe Scripture teaches. And it's such a more effective way to do it, because it shows that God changes lives before he changes countries. The world's not hopeless because God saved you and me. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And one reason that Paul describes the unbeliever in these bleak terms And the way that we existed as unbelievers is to emphasize the fact that when salvation came, it had nothing to do with us, it had everything to do with God. That's why he starts verse 4 with the word, but. Look at that. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says you can have confidence in this. He, t- he says that. You can have confidence in this, that, um, that we are saved by grace and we have this This hope to look forward to. Here's the third application. Pretty simple, but it's simply this We aren't saved by good deeds, but for good deeds. We aren't saved by good deeds, but for good deeds. Verse five, that's basically a paraphrase of verse five He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but He saved us for good deeds. If we were to read the rest of the book of Titus, we would see this over and over again. Good doctrine should produce good deeds. You know, if you look at the Old Testament laws, it's pretty interesting, uh, all the fuss that it makes about avoiding anything sick or unclean or dead, because it makes you unclean. If you touch something that's unclean, it makes you unclean. And yet when Christ came into the world, he did just the opposite. He touched plenty that was unclean. But the reality is, it didn't make him unclean. He made it clean. When he would touch a leper, he made the leper clean. When he would touch a dead person, that person would come to life. We are to be, in some sense, like Jesus. And I don't mean that we run around doing miracles and healing people and raising them to life, but that we are God's agent of grace in a world that desperately needs to see grace. Um, I remember one time getting on an airplane and sitting uh, like, you know, there was a whole empty row of seats in front of me. And then I thought, wow, great, you know, going to have a little space on this airplane. And then, you know, right before the door slams, here they come. Uh, A mother and two, well, two toddlers, one screaming. And guess where they sat? Right in front of me. Oh, boy. This little boy's name was Theo, which means God. How ironic. And he was a living terror. I mean, the whole flight. I don't remember. It was only like a couple-hour flight. But he was horrible, a horrible child. Now I guess I'm maligning the child. Sorry. But it was tough. And I I really struggled with judging this woman. You know, why didn't she control this child? Why doesn't, you know, why don't you just make things better for me, lady? And and calm your children down. Because after all, it is all about me. Right? I mean, you're the same way. (laughs) I know you are. I know you are. We are, that's how we are. And then somehow, the Holy Spirit made his way onto the airplane and found a hole in my narrow heart and crawled in. And I thought, wait a minute. Who knows what this lady's day has been like? Who knows what the lady's life is like? For all I know, this is a special needs child, and this is a good day. Rather than judge people, we have compassion on people. I was with a couple one time, and there was a... We saw a woman that was uh, clearly immodest, you know, walking. I forget exactly where we were, but... uh, Anyway, one of, the, one of the couple said, look, she looks like she needs a street corner. And the other of the couple said, she looks like she needs a savior. Two totally different perspectives about the same individual. Compassion. Paul says, don't ever look at the world and think that you're better. God's grace is the only thing that made the difference. Instead, be the hand of Christ Be the hand that reaches out in compassion. Be the one that shows the very grace that you yourself got. And if the Lord provides an opportunity to talk about the gospel, fantastic. If there isn't, then show the gospel in your life until they ask you, why in the world are you so loving? And then you got the stage to talk about Jesus Christ. These principles are very simple, but let me repeat them once again. God's saving grace is freely available to all. Yes, even to you. Second, God's saving grace is our motivation for godly living. And finally, we aren't saved by good deeds, but for good deeds. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your gracious patience with us. For some of us, it was years in the making of your providence that brought us to the point of the shades opening in our eyes and realizing that we had a need before you that was desperate and unfixable, that our sin put us in a state that we in ourselves could not save ourselves or commend ourselves before you in any way. We needed your grace. Thank you for opening our eyes to that truth and to the provision of Jesus who died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again to prove that our sins were paid for. That great appreciation for you that we had in that moment, help us not lose that. Not just for us personally, but also to translate that into the world in which we live. Because our world desperately needs to see it. When our world sees evangelical Christians, they typically think politically. They typically think mm, judgmental, harsh, unbending, ungodly. And the reality is Lord Jesus was not like this at all. The Lord Jesus attracted the harlots, attracted the tax collectors, the sinners, longed to be around him because he was a man of grace. Help us to be that way, Lord. Open our eyes to needs that are greater than simply everybody looking like us. Open our eyes to the great truth that the world needs the grace that you were so good to give to us. Thank you for the book of Titus, for Paul's compassion and his passion to write. Thank you for inspiring him to write to Titus, for teaching on the island of Crete and teaching us right here today these same truths.